Okay, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. How are you doing today? How's your how's your pandemic experience going? You know, you know what I think about a lot lately? I've been thinking about um what's relevant and what isn't. It's a big one, right? Like nothing seems what was important before. Is that going to be important again? Should I throw out my entire wardrobe? Are people going to be completely dressed differently? Is makeup on the way out? And then like things I really care about. But that's um, actually, I'm really lucky because we actually have a therapist on today. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But mostly I want to say thank you for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and thank you for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. We really appreciate it. We had a really good internal meeting. The station is, we're trying to keep our, our attitude up, our morale up, and we are. And, but, you know, like this is a really tough time for us. And if you're listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit, first of all, thank you so much for listening, but also please go to Brooklyn, RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and uh, donate, you know, keep us going, okay? Because we need to be here for you. So I'm very excited about my guest today. Like I said, she's a professional, licensed, highly experienced therapist and writer. Her name is Sherry Armas. I'm not going to get her last name right. I'm not. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> And um, she's here in my virtual studio. So the reason that um, I got in touch with Sherry and asked her to be on my show, which I'm grateful to have her have you, thank you, Sherry, is because Sherry is doing real therapy sessions on the radio as a real therapist. And, you know, I, I, this is sort of like, you know, my, my uh, you know, world and I wanted, I was listening to some of her sessions and they're very, very interesting. Uh, so she's, she's great at it. And she's written like, she's really accomplished. Okay. She's written like four books. She is considered by many a relationship expert. She's been on TV and so many things. Um, hello, Sherry. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, and you've also written a book, um, How Does It Make You Feel?, which is a book about an anthology. It, why don't you tell us who you are? Tell us about your books. Um, well, uh, I've written three self-help relationship books, um, Dating Q&A, um, The Love Lessons from Bad Breakups, A Complete Marriage Counselor, and then the most recent one was an anthology, How Does That Make You Feel? True Confessions from Both Sides of the Therapy Couch. Mm -hmm. And those were essays from, well, myself and lots of therapists and about some aspect of our experience of who we are and as a therapist. And then people, all accomplished writers, uh, writing about some aspect of, their therapy, none of the patients and therapists uh, who participated in the book were actually, were like working together. Everybody yeah. was writing about their yeah. own experience. But, you know, the idea of it was because 
a lot of people think that a if you're a therapist um you're you sort of like know everything you're you know it's like i don't feel that people should view therapists as just these up on a pedestal creatures like authority figures we're human beings as well um and so right doing the book i thought about it a lot because it was also about a big thing about therapies boundaries therapy excuse me a big piece of therapy is having boundaries Mm -hmm. you know we talk about that is the therapist in this day of instantly looking somebody up in google it's really hard to just be this figure who you know nothing about anymore because it's pretty easy to find out some things about your therapist but certainly the therapy session it should not be about the therapist it is about the the patient but it was it was sort of like in breaking boundaries in that sense because all the therapists were talking about admitting their humanity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways as they you know with their participation because it's dangerous i think it can be dangerous when people do a lot of people do give power to their to their therapists and they can be taken advantage of doesn't happen often but it can so uh, so yeah so that that's why that's why i did the anthology Mm -hmm. because you think that it's important that um, people see their therapists as just regular people and not... Well, I mean, like, certainly I don't talk about my personal stuff with my patients. Not, right. in, not in that sense. But, um, and part of therapy is that it hopefully becomes a safe place and there's the whole transference, counter-transference counter-transference aspect of it where you become the good mother figure let's say you know you so there is your the idea of therapy is to work through a lot of your stuff and kind of learn how to handle your issues better and understand yourself more and care about yourself in a lot of ways i'm a conduit i guess right right uh, but what about the blank slate? I mean, that comes from... Well, that, that's exactly it. I mean, therapists and, often viewed as that blank slate, and my book was kind of showing we are people with our own stuff. So how, how, how much can you be a blank slate? And I bring in... Well, now all my sessions are virtual, obviously, right, with right. COVID. But I bring in my personal stuff if it's something that I feel can help the patient deal with oh. his or her. So um, if you have a story that's relevant, you will share it or a thought or, or I have a story that can be helpful. Right. Them. Which a strict, I know, I mean, I don't believe in any one type of therapy. I think most therapists use a mix of different th- thoughts, right? Thought processes. But I think that, um, that would, um, that, isn't kosher or classic Freudian, right? Oh no, I'm not a Freudian. <laughs> no, no, but I mean that. But that's kind of like yeah, yeah. So, so you know, Freud. Look, he had personal relationships with some of his patients. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I look know. at it that way. 
so. But, but yes, I no, also think that you them. have, I'm going to say this, having just spent literally maybe five or 10 minutes with you virtually, is I think you have a big personality. I mean, do other people, would other people say that about you? Um, you know, there's always the public persona and the private persona. Right. But I think that my guess about you, my impression of you is that you have a very large personality, that you are an outspoken person. Like you're not, you're not a, you have a lot of thoughts and you have a lot to say. And if I met you at a cocktail party, it would be delightful, but I think you would be a presence in the room. Am I right? Um, I, that's a, that would be nice. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. I mean, actually in a party situation, if it's people I don't really know, it can take me a while to like, you know, not Work feel. Outside, but you have a lot of personality. Yeah. I'm your partner or somebody that knows you well would probably say that. But I'm also saying that like, I imagine you as a therapist would have a, wouldn't be doing justice by trying to hide your personality. Is that, do you feel that therapy sort of the, the training or the, the trope of it kind of makes you, does it make you feel repressed? Um, no, I mean, actually, I think that the relationships that I have with my patients are, you know, I've had some of the most profound experiences that I've had in therapy sessions. Well, for me, it's about helping someone see something, mm -hmm. you know, or stop repeating a negative pattern or, or something like that. Um, what was interesting for me in becoming a therapist, because my first career was in publishing and I would write, I worked at women's self-help magazines, you know, so they're all about advice, you know, and I did relate romantic relationship columns and things like that. Um, but therapy is different because it's not about giving advice from on high and telling you what to do. It's about helping someone come to see their stuff. Right. So if I see someone doing something it's really self-destructive or whatever, um, you know, I'm definitely going to bring it up and we'll talk about it and look at it because, you know, you don't want to see somebody jumping off uh, a roof. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. So you started out in publishing your, I think you're a prolific writer. I mean, you have like four books besides doing all the therapy and stuff. That's, you're not just a writer, but you have a lot, a lot published. So when you started out in publishing, did, how did you decide that you wanted to be a therapist? Did you just, were you going to be a writer first? Oh, you know, I always, um, I, when I was age nine, I sort of like sat down and started writing a novel, Marcy and the New Girl. So hmm. I always wanted to be a writer, but I was kind of torn because my, I come from a Holocaust background. My parents, um, all my relatives were Holocaust survivors. Wow, your parents? Never, yeah, I never had a grandparent. You know, um, my parents met here after the war. And, you know, it's such a, it's, it's such a interesting background. I mean, because they're obviously, all my relatives were shaped by what they went through. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was, you know, you, you kind of feel like, well, I can't really cause trouble because look at everything they've gone through. And I was raised hearing all my mother's stories. And so I also wanted to give back. So I, one of my career goals, it, it really was like, I thought about uh, becoming a therapist early on, but I, you know, I majored in communications and I went into publishing. And then I think what made me finally decide, you know, I'm going to go for it um, was, well, my parents getting, you know, getting older, getting sick, 9-11. Um, I did volunteer work there. I volunteered at a suicide hotline for a while. And then I, I just, I wanted, I wanted to feel that I was doing something that was really of service and had meaning. So I went to, uh, so I went to social work school and, um, and I've been a therapist. I'm an LCSW licensed right. clinical social worker yeah. for like, I guess around 13 years now. Yeah. And you have a oh. successful practice and a whole bunch of books and all that stuff. So, um, you definitely, you know, you've got, to, you have accomplished quite a bit. Um, so you're also first generation American. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, there, I want to hear about your childhood, but I also, before we get into that, I was going to just ask you, because a lot of, you have done a lot of books, or you've done more than one book, and you have, relationships seems to be an area of interest to you. Have you, is that something that you have a good, like, is it something that you're sensitive to in other people? Well, I mean, I think that that started, the books started as a result of, you know, I worked at, you know, again, women's magazines and then women's websites, like at iVillage and at Hearst. And, you know, I was writing dating columns as part of my job. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I would be on talk shows, giving relationship advice. It felt like a little bit, you know, surreal. Um, surreal. And Sorry. Well, I mean, because I, you know, I think why, well, why me? <laughs> it. Well, it was, it was because well, the talk shows themselves are like you know were so idiotic. Oh, I see. Because they asked, and, and I think one thing that like was really funny and typified the whole thing. Well, this was also I was doing a lot of those shows before I was a therapist. They would invite me on because I'd written some article oh. and at a woman's magazine, you know, and then I'd be on uh, like Geraldo or something. And oh. then it, the Chiron would say like Carrie Matsu, relationship expert and an ex-boyfriend of mine, his mother was watching and then she started laughing, relationship expert, that's David's ex-girlfriend you know oh that's so so, so yeah so it was that's, just that's really really funny yeah yeah but that that's why yeah. that kind of led to my writing uh self-help relationship books but you know in my private practice and I also uh see patients again everything is virtual these days um at uh at a clinic and a lot of the patients at the clinic I mean are also under seeing a psychiatrist. Some of them are, you know, schizophrenic, right. bipolar, prescribed drugs, homeless, like really, you know, on on the fringes. So I mean, 
being a therapist is being a therapist. Um, right. People who, I, I mean, certainly the, and you know, one thing I often say is the most important relationship that you'll ever have is the one with yourself. Um, and when you feel good about yourself, you're going to have healthier relationships, mm-hmm. you know, um, I want to hear about that. Well, because if, if you just desperately feel like if there's a hole, a hole deep in you and you feel that the only thing that's going to fill it is having somebody who loves you and feeling like you were never really loved by your parents and, you know, all of those kinds of things, our relationship is not going to fill that hole or give you, give your life meaning or make you feel, you know, fabulous about yourself. I often say to people, that's an inside job. Right. right. The healthiest relationships are between two people who are healthy in their own right. And you can form like an interdependency, but not a codependency. And, you know, because we are all so formed by so much childhood pain and just all of these things there there can be a lot of a lot of uh dysfunctional motivations in seeking a relationship and in the types of people who you pick as your partners so it really is until you until you have good self esteem and that good relationship with yourself that you will you'll be with somebody who will treat you well and who is not your life but a part of your life so do you think that what's more important like to a successful relationship the people in the relation is it about the match or is it like uh i i would like to think ideally that uh, really together that two together healthy people can make a relationship work whether they're like fit like hand in glove or not what do you what do you think do you think it's Um, I mean I think that there you have to well you have to have the same goals you know um hopefully you're both wanting the same thing right at least at least like living in the same town or something at least at least that at least that just the same values the same goals values are you know some kind of attraction spark Mm -hmm. um but you know in the healthiest pairings it is when you treat each other well when you understand what a what a healthy relationship is because it is difficult to go from me to we and what does that mean right so what is your, I want to understand your, your example of relationships. So how did you grow up? You were obviously, you know, your parents, I mean, it sounds like it was, you know, a lot, but. It was. <laughs> it was. Um, where did you, where did you grow up? Actually, I, um, I've always basically lived, I guess, in the New York area. So. Mm-hmm born in the Bronx and then we moved to like Little Neck which is kind of borderline between borderline it's you know still Queens near Great Neck um right. all that stuff um right so, so like a um, suburbs so you had and, yeah, and my parents were very overprotective 
um, understandably, um, with everything that they'd gone through. So, you know, I was desperate to go away to college, but my older sister did not fight that good fight. So I, I had no chance. Uh, yeah, I was so. going to ask you about that. So you have a, a brothers and sisters, you have a sister then. I have a sister. An yes. older sister. So, um, and you, what was the impact? Like what, what, what would I, what are the qualities that you experienced in having like parents who had gone through the Holocaust? Did they tell you stories? Was it, yeah, I was raised hearing was my mother's story. All the time? Yeah. Was it in the house? Was it part of the atmosphere? What was that like? I want to, can you? Yeah, I mean, it was always there. It was pretty much always there. I mean, and I, I actually, I went with my father when I was around 20, when he gave testimony in Germany at a war trial. Oh my God, really? So, wow, yeah. you saw that? Yeah. Wow, and did he describe what his experiences were? Well, this, this the defendant uh, was, was actually, he had served time earlier for, offenses that he had done in uh russia mm -hmm. and this the the reason why the this trial was happening was my father was from Lodz, which was a big town in poland and in 1944 he his parents and his three sisters were caught up in what was called a spira a roundup you know, mm -hmm. and that's when they were shepherded onto the cattle car and, you know, taken to Auschwitz. And the defendant, uh, his nickname was the boxer for how he treated mm -hmm. people. And he was the defendant. And this particular charge was about his violence and the way that he was during the roundup. So you had to sit through as a 20 year old and listen to all that, right? No, I wanted to go with my father. Were, was, were, you, were you, was it stuff that you had heard before? Well, I, I just wanted to be, well, it wasn't about my father in that sense. This was a, I just wanted to be, uh, to be a support for my right. father. Right. I just wanted to be a support for my right. father. And, you know, and frankly, um, he, he could have given testimony in New York. His two sisters, he survived with two sisters. I mean, he watched his parents and little sister at Auschwitz be taken to the gas chambers. Oh, and God, it's unimaginable. I know. And then he um, was transferred to Dachau and he was there for, the, for eight months until liberation. So, I mean, you can't come out of that, you know, totally functional. It's horrific. When you were a child, when you were growing up, did they talk to you? Like, was it something that you um, were like exposed to as a child? Something you had to integrate into the, that was integrated? Yes. Yes. It and was I, like mother's. I understand that as a child. Did you have yeah. any other, like, how did you understand that? Like, did you have other friends or did you and your sister talk about it? Or how did well, you? Well, also it was my relatives. I mean, they all had gone through that. Mm -hmm. All my relatives had gone through that. So were you around groups of people where it was discussed a lot? Oh, yeah, around my relatives all the time. Mm. 
And you know, I mean, I went to school with you know America with people who kids who had didn't have that background. You know, I mean, I was a I grew up like you grow up. Right, right. <laughs> But it was definitely a part of me. It's always been a part but, of me. But is, was it like, I mean, I remember like when I was like probably eight or nine learning, I'm Jewish, obviously, Levy, learning what the Holocaust was, right? right. And, you know, we had films at camp and stuff like that. And I found it incredibly terrifying and, you know, like all that, like, I mean, it re it resonated a lot of fear in me, but not in a constant way. Like, what was it like for you? Did you feel like you had more fear in your house or more, was there some kind of, was it anxiety? Like, what were, did, you know, were people worried about what was going to happen or was it just that they had suffered or how did you understand it? Do you remember? Um, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, too, I mean, I know my sister and my cousins and I feel grateful for that type for our parents because they loved us so much. They came here with no money, no language, just having gone through everything they went through and they all built lives. They started businesses, they raised families their focus was on their families. I mean, and they would, you know, they would socialize and do stuff like people do, but of course it colors you. Yeah, yeah. You know, it colors you, it's there. And um, I Did think I mentioned earlier, I mean, I felt very protective of, of, Sorry? of, them, of my family. I'm sorry, I didn't hear protective. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I would, I feel very protective of them. You oh. don't want anything other than that to happen. But yeah, there's certainly, there's an amount, there is a level of like, let's say PTSD, you know, there, of course. I mean, if my father was late getting home from work, this was well before cell phones, you know, yeah. My, I, my mother would get nervous. I'd get nervous. It's like, you know, you think something bad <laughs> is happening. Right. right. You know, so that, that kind of thing. an extra level of caution in your household, right? That would be normal, right? Well, I mean, definitely my parents were very... Sorry? Oh, my parents were very, were overprotective, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Which didn't sit well with me, but that's, I understood why. Right. But, and then with your sister as well? Of course. Yeah. yeah. So how did that manifest? Were you not allowed to do things that you wanted to do? Or what well, kind I mean, of... We, we had friends. We went out, you know. Mm -hmm. But there was always that, you know, there also was that your world should kind of be the focus of... Sort of, it was sort of, it wasn't... You know, that you should live a life where I should just, you know, get married, raise a family, not, you know, and I sort of always had different, you know, kinds of, I didn't just want to be like, I, I kind of wanted to do stuff. 
Right. Yeah, you seem like a, like I, I said to you earlier, you seem really motivated. I think you seem like a really driven, hard working person. Were you so, all? Yeah, I guess I just, I think I always wanted to, you know, help people. I definitely was driven to build a career and be able to take care of myself. That was always something, you know, I had an early marriage and divorce and I wanted to, I always needed to know that I could take care of myself. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you got married? Oh, I got married like at 20 and divorced at 23, really young. Wow. <laughs> and how did, how did that come about? Did you meet somebody like in high school or did you? College. Well, I, you know, I sort of did everything early, I guess. I skipped a couple grades. So I got married a couple months after I graduated from college. Oh, because you skipped a couple, you went to college yeah. at college? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I graduated like barely 20, I guess. So, yeah. So you went to college at like 16? How did you do uh, Well, because I also, I guess, because I skipped like, I, yeah, it was sort of like I skipped mm -hmm. second grade or something weird like that. And then I did like the, yeah. the two-year SP, like skipping seventh grade. And, you know, in retrospect, it really wasn't good. Um, it would have been better to not be in such a rush. Had the development. Yeah. So you know, because I was, you know, all my friends were a lot older than me. So I did all these things, you know. Did that it, I probably would have been fine doing later. <laughs> so did it seem normal when you got married? Did that seem like a normal age? Do you think that you were looking for some sort of stability or some kind of, you know, something solid from... Well, I mean, I think at that age, um, you know, I didn't make a wise choice. Well, I mean... And it was very young. And I was very young. So parents say about that um they i mean they they so still threw a big wedding they what? threw a big wedding <laughs> a big wedding and were they excited that you were getting married they weren't pushing me to get married that young mm -hmm. um and but you know to my parents they're you know you they definitely wanted to see their daughters married and taken care of taken care of you know, but on the other hand, you know, I think they were, because both of my parents have passed now, but they were proud of a lot of the things that I subsequently did do. Like, like for instance, I was a part of um, Steven Spielberg's Survivors of the Shoah. Um, I actually, I did, I interviewed him. I did uh, cover stories on him for USA Weekend. Um, we did it like when Showa was starting because I was an interviewer for it. And then 25 years later on the 25th anniversary, which was oh. really cool. Yeah. Um, so you've been part of, that's a community, and, isn't it? And my parents, my parents were interviewed for it. I mean, Survivors of the Showa is a video history, it, you know, it's, um, it's videos of survivors telling their stories. And I was an interviewer for it. Like in a two-year period, I probably interviewed like around 60 survivors in their homes. Um, I mean, there was a videographer and I was, you know, talking to them. I did, 
and you know, I mean, with the pre-interviews I did with them, as soon as they found out I was a child of survivors, I was in like Flynn, you right, know, right. and my parents, my parents gave their testimony. They were, they also were part of, part of it. So that must have really, so you, you must have a really, um, kind of a, a real intimate knowledge for somebody who had, who didn't go through that with that experience. Well, I grew I grew up with it. Yeah. So how about like when you got you got divorced at twenty three? Was that what was the, you know was that really hard or? Yes, it was traumatic. It was very difficult. <laughs> how did that affect you? Do you think that has anything to do with your interest in couples or how, what did you get? What? How did that affect you? Do you think? I, you know, it was, it was dramatic. It was very difficult. As well, I said, I mean, I think I did everything too young and I didn't really know myself. And I was always somebody, I guess, who was, who was attracted to like being needed because I was so used to, you know, that's just sort of what I was like in a lot of ways. And he really parents? wasn't, he wasn't the best person, you know? And so I was lucky to get out of it, you know, fairly young and then allow my, and then I had a lot of really cool experiences. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I really, my first career was in publishing and through being in publishing, I mean, I did some really, really cool things. I did sort of like George Plimpton, Walter Mitty types of articles where you sort of immerse yourself in some wacky experience. Oh, I performed on stage with the Rockettes. You did? Parade the Wooden Soldier. That what? How did you wind up doing that? Well, I just, it's funny. I was at um, just like a dance performance with someone I was dating at the time. And I just turned to him and I just said, I want to be a Rockette. <laughs> and did you do that? Did you, I mean, were you, a, did you learn how to dance? Oh. Well, A, I'm 5'1", and I'm not a dancer, and then, but I, I called the PR, the public relations person uh, at Radio City, and I told her, you know, I'm 5'1", I'm not a dancer, but I want to perform with the Rockettes and write about it. So she, you uh, know, she said, oh, and yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, sure. Stage with them. I got an assignment, I got an assignment from Newsday Sunday magazine, oh, which doesn't funny. exist anymore. And I was working full time. So when they were going to be rehearsing the, uh, you know, I was in the parade of the wooden soldiers, which is not a high kick number. I could not do that. But you know, the marching number, you know, oh, you so you did that. and marching. So when they were going to be, and they were going to let me do it. If the director felt that I passed, they were going to let me do it at the, full dress rehearsal of opening of the opening night um, oh, in front of like a full audience and all of that. So when the, the Rockettes would be rehearsing that number, they would call me, I would take a cab to Radio City and march with them. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. That must have been fun to get to. It, it was. I mean, it was yeah. really Right. Okay. Uh, I was a clown with the Moscow Circus. Um, yeah. so I did. What about your dating life after you got married? Um, like even after I got divorced. Yeah. Did you ever get divorced, right? That's what I meant. After yeah. you got divorced, not after you got married, just started. Right. Um, do you, did you, um, I was going to say, um, did you, um, 
you know, was it hard to get out? Like, did, did you date? A, did you ever get married again? Um, I've had like, and I'm in, you know, I, I, I have not gotten married again, but I've had serious, like monogamous relationships. And, um, with somebody now we've been together for a long time and we live together. So, right. you know, um, so, I mean, I did, you know, I sort of, as, as I said, I kind of did things a little ass backwards because yeah. I started after my divorce then I lived with a roommate and started dating. <laughs> you know? Did you date a lot? Um, I always was more of a relationship. I was always more of a relationship person than like a dating person, mm -hmm. I guess, you know. You'd have like long-term relationships. Yeah. Monogamous yeah. relationships. What's the longest relationship you've had? Um, Is it 10 years or less or? Probably, yeah. Yeah. And what have you learned? Like, do you learn something every single time or do you see your own self repeat? Well, I mean, the per I mean, my partner now, he's, we've been together for a while. We've known each other a long time. And, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is it. Um, right. right. But right. definitely, hopefully, you know, we learn from every relationship that, that we're in. Do you see patterns in your own relationships over the years? Did you see patterns? Um, well, after my husband, I made way better choices. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I'm still friends with people who I had. My, my, one of my closest friends is the first person that I had a relationship with after my divorce. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, we that. dated for like two years. Oh, and. And, you know, we've been, we've been, you know, he's a really, really, he's a very close friend, you know, so. No, that's, that's, a, that's, you know, that's a lifetime relationship, whether you're married. Absolutely. For sure. I personally think it's always a good sign if you're friends with your old boyfriends or partners or whatever. I think it's a sign of a healthy relationship. Um, do you think that maybe getting married was a way for you to transition from being like a child uh, to an adult? Um, I think it helped me get out of the house. Because <laughs> uh -huh. you didn't go away. Did you want to go away to college? Desperately. And where? Do, what was your fantasy of going to college? I mean, I just, I just wanted the experience of going away to school. And, and you your know? parents were no, just no. No, they were very, you know. So my sister and then myself, we went to Queens College, and then, you know, I mean, I got married like pretty instantly. I graduated in May, and I got married that October. So, so do you think if your parents had let you go away to college, it would have been a different story? Like. Most likely, probably. What you were looking for is finding yourself, sort of? Um, you know, I, I'm sure it would have been different. I would have had different experiences. I would have met different people. Um, but, you know, I mean, it was what it was. And I, I do believe that we do have, you know, even in relationships where, that I've had that were not good ones and again the marriage was the only really not good one yeah. um you know we learned like i wrote a book love love lessons from bad breakups and each chapter i interview um separately each person involved in in a relationship that didn't work out 
mm-hmm. you know, for their different interpretations of what happened. But, you know, if we go and I work, I do, as you said, you know, I do couples work and it's kind of always about, it's not about if you, if you're in a relationship, it kind of has to be about two people being there for each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't, you don't give yourself up, but you also are there for your partner and what they need. And, you know, especially when you're with somebody for a, for a while and you go through stuff, you know, like I'm going through a medical thing now and, you know, my partner is there for me a million percent, you know, being there, going through it in the time of COVID makes everything harder. Oh, you know? of course. But you, I mean, you have a certain level, well, of maturity too, and experience, life experience. But oh yeah, you're this talking, is a lot better at this point. What you're talking about <laughs> is trust. Uh, so a lot of it is really, it is, but, but um, it feels like if, you know, I mean, a lot of it's about trust and experience together and growing together. But I also think that, I mean, what I'm thinking about, I want you to explain if you would, is codependency. Like we're talking about boundaries. Is that sort of yeah. what you're talking about also? Like the boundaries that you have around yourself and, and the other, you know, to keep separate. But how do you know where you should draw the boundaries? Well, I mean, codependency is, and you know, there's a lot of, uh, codependency is a very unhealthy dynamic. You know, often like one person has the quote unquote power and the other person is scrambling to do everything they can to make the other person happy right you know we we do it always sounds cliche to say it but we do our our idea of what a relationship is is molded by our parents relationship right our relationship with our parents and all those kinds of feelings and often until we really understand what we're doing we often just unconsciously replicate those patterns and they're not always very healthy ones and two people often find each other and they each fit that same dysfunctional duo Mm -hmm. and that's not and it's really only once you understand yourself and your patterns and why you're doing what you're doing that you can develop I think uh, a healthy a healthy dynamic together which is about yes um, that you both care about each other but you're also able to sort of do stuff to build yourself up as well you know and certainly when I do work with couples, a lot of it is about, you know, uh, I like it when people come early, not when they're so stuck in really dysfunctional patterns of, you know, not trusting each other, uh, terrible communication, just like no respect, no list, no, you know, and certainly um, people do stuff because of their issues you know, and, and there are other, but there's still two people in a relationship. Whenever people come in and they say, it's all your fault, you this, you that. 
Yeah. I always say there's two people in a relationship. Yeah. You both create this together. Right, right. I think a lot of couples have trouble understanding that. Do you? Like they think it's one, if they think it's, do, do you think this is common where the person, where each person thinks it's the other person with the problems? I mean, it's a, that definitely can be the case. It depends on, on the people involved, but that often can That's be. A common one? Is it that, that and what you were saying about one person trying to please the other? So that's a hard dynamic to get out of also, I would think, because um, the person who's not asserting themselves has to understand that they deserve more or they should assert. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. Um, and do you think that the other person who has the power is trying to take advantage of them or... It, I mean, I can't say uh, for all the time, but that, yeah. you know, that certainly can be the case for sure. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with self-esteem. So stereotypically, women probably undervalue themselves. Um, though, you know, I've seen a lot of men also who undervalue themselves too. You know, I, I used to do workshops for men and it was really always very interesting to see you know like if you have a circle of women and a circle of men the different ways that they view how the other sex treats them oh yeah but a lot of men look it's certainly in the dating world you know and being in new york for sure um you know a lot of a lot of men would feel well i have to have enough money and a nice car and this and that and whatever you know it's also so it, it's it's there's a lot of levels involved yeah, yeah it depends well there's also like i think ego gets so involved in dating for for everyone for both men and women and women want you know they all want something that makes reflects well on them i mean that's a that's a trap too and again, you know, not to generalize, but there are a lot of traps, let's say, that that people do do fall into. And you know, a lot of the work and when I do work with couples, I always say part of the couple's work is individual work because yes. you have to look at yourself and your stuff and how you are participating and contributing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to all of this as well. Right, right, right. Um so, you know, just Hey guys, just so you know, um, my husband and I, since we've been together, which is close to 20 years, we've been in and out of couples therapy regularly. I think it's a good, healthy part of a relationship. Personally, I'm just telling you, that's what I think. I think it's a good tool to have in your toolbox. Uh, absolutely. It's sort of like it has this bad reputation, let's say. Like something um, that, oh, well if we love each other, it means that there's something terrible. And no, it's, and I love when couples come before they get married or, you know, early on mm -hmm. and they sort of learn more how to communicate and just all the factors involved in what does marriage mean to you? What does it mean to you? What are your values? What are your goals? And just the, all, there's a lot involved, you know, there's really... New York City is not a normal place. That's not dating like that's it. true. New York right. City is not your normal. So anybody who's from New York City that's dating, and that includes Bushwick folks, this is not normal. 
it's a whole other thing. People are way too type A here to have any kind. They're all ambitious. They may not be type A, but everybody wants something that comes here. So, you know, which isn't good for young people. Okay, you got to like establish, you know, just know who you are, right? That's what I'm saying, guys. So um, you, you have, you were um, remarking that you've been doing a lot of uh, therapy through the COVID time period. And I wanted to get some, we only have 10 minutes left, but I wanted to get some of your insights on what you've been seeing in your practice. Well, it's, you know, I always say that um, you have the issues that you had before and then all the COVID stuff on top of it. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's a lot to deal with. There's so much shame, my dog. dog? My dog has a lot to say about this topic. <laughs> and, you know, and there's, there's so many stressors that are real. People have lost their jobs. Um, you know, health issues that are, that have gone untreated. Um, people who, who are alone, people who are kind of, in not great relationships and, or just big families and all, you know, there's so much involved in all of it. I think is a whole other story. Yeah. And the, the fear and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, and the, the whole limbo of not knowing when this is going to be over. Right. Right. And you have to have people agreeing, you know, if you're a unit, what one person does right now, the other person will be impacted by. Right. One person just goes out and about yeah. and they're exposing right. themselves to stuff. You're also exposing whoever you're living with. Of course, of course. But it, it feels like there, to me, it just feels like there's sort of free, I call it free-floating anxiety everywhere. Oh, uh, there's so much anxiety and stress. And, you know, I definitely, you have to self-nurture. Uh-huh. Um, what, what does that mean? And, I think a lot of things that are healthy and certainly, you know, if you need therapy, reaching out is a healthy thing to do in terms of that. Definitely trying to keep to some kind of routine, you know, and working out is a good thing. Being physical fit, getting rid of your stress through your body. Eating well sleeping, you know, like all these things are really important. You know, getting outside is a helpful thing. It's hard. The isolation of it is really difficult because now we're sort of like our relationships are on Zoom. You yeah. Know? You know, it's funny because I, I, I noticed myself, I've been having this, this, this issue myself. So I feel comfortable like, you know, social, having a drink, social distancing, right? And, but now I feel like it's such a big deal to ask people that I feel self-conscious about inviting people to hang out. Do you know what I mean? Which is holding me back. You know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, as long as you're, I think that everybody has to make their own decisions. Right. In some ways, I think what is perhaps the best way of doing it is like people have their, I've heard it referred to as like a pod. Like you have the people who you know and you trust. Um, and if you hang out together, like outside is best. The six feet apart thing is good, you know, but probably not just 
going I'm, I'm also you know, talking about, and I've talked to other people about this. I think what I'm really talking about is that um, I have, you know, I'm used to like going out and like socializing, running into people, but it's been, right. it's been, um, I feel like I'm lo losing my nerve socially. Mm. I feel like I'm getting more, I don't know if the word is introverted or isolated or just not confident with people socializing i'm losing confidence from lack of practice maybe or something well i think you said that you you still want to get together physically with people but that the people who you're sort of talking to are kind of, just sort of afraid to ask in a way i mean you know I feel like i don't want to put myself on the line mm. What, what started that for you, the feeling that you're putting your, why do you feel that you're putting yourself on the line if you ask somebody if they want to socialize? No, I don't know. I mean, I'm just noticing. I mean, um, I mean, do you have enough, a, a whole, I, I don't want to give, get a, try and get a free hour out of you, but this is definitely something. Well, we don't have that much time left. So. My therapist tomorrow, but I've noticed, I'm just saying I was a very shy kid. And I noticed that I'm regressing as far as being socially outgoing or pro proactive. Without flexing those muscles. And I am, yeah, reverting. And I think, I think regressing. And I think that, that is really common that people are regressing, right? Well, it's, it's so, you know, we're also, we're, we like to be with each other and touch and do all those things. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. we can't. Right. So it is, you know, we're sort of thrown backwards and developing what else can a relationship be? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It's so unnatural. And it is, it is unnatural in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really natural. I think one of the things that's important is for everybody to keep in mind that everybody is feeling this. Yeah, I mean there is and I think that's good too to know that there is that community, that commonality. You know, we are in this together, but also to know this will end. Yes, we right. don't know when, but this will not be forever. But, you know, and it's, I think it's also good to notice, like, what can you learn about yourself? Right. And I think I hear a lot of that going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good thing because we, we certainly know the negatives. We can, you know, each say rattle off 20 negatives in like, you know, a minute and a half probably. But it's also like, this is also, it's very challenging and awful in a lot of ways but it's also an opportunity. Oh, you mean instead of just like learning what's horrible about yourself to actually learn something good? Oh. Well, yeah, and that, that's it too. It's, it's sort of like, See, for like, sure. It's um, totally, it's to, I'm totally the wrong person to be in a pandemic. Like I am like always hearing that I'm not productive enough. And being in the pandemic, there's no way to evaluate your productivity because you're just doing what you're doing at home and it's not out there and, you know, there's no use for it. And there's no, like, realization for things the way that one would hope. And I think that that is, I think that that is a real trick. 
You know what I mean? Well, I mean? You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a trip. And it's also, but I think when we chatted before we went on air, you know, and I was saying, I'm, I'm, is, I'm trying to also, one of the things that this is teaching me, hopefully, is that I don't always have to be doing. I don't always have to be. Well, you don't have that problem because you're an overachiever. Well, but I can just sit and read or listen to music or watch, you know, I've been like ODing on Frankie and Grace, you no, know, I mean, do you like and that? Have, that be, have that be okay. I mean, do I, certainly, do I miss all the stuff? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we but, only have a minute left, so tell me. Oh, I, I did just want to mention, because you mentioned earlier, Sorry. Uh, my podcast is Sherapy, Real Therapy with Sherry Mattenstein. And um, it's basically I do, I, I probably just do it like once a month at this point. But it is, I do an anonymous therapy set. You know, people come on and it is a therapy session. Uh -huh. We don't say their name and we change certain Are details, but... Yeah. The ongoing patients of yours or how do you find no, them? No, I would not do that with a patient of mine. Right. So how do you find them? Um, well, I'll sort of like put no. it out there, like on social media or ask or, or things mm -hmm. like that. And I do, I do an hour long intake with them just ah. as I do with a, a new patient ah. so that I know them and what's going on for them and wow. you can focus the session. So. Wow. Wow, that's true. and I started that a lot just to like not have the stigma so much of therapy. Um, I think I mentioned to you when we spoke on the phone. Uh, my idea for it came after uh, a friend of mine um, killed himself oh. and last summer, and I think you know there's still that there is still that stigma of reaching out and going for help, and so and especially now in these COVID times when everything is piling on, I think, I think we need to like self nurture and take care and, and not be, and be able to reach out. So well, I'm going to say your, your version of, of, uh, online therapy, radio therapy is a lot more noble because it's actually, uh, based on really wanting to help people and put and do something for, for mental health. And I am sort of a bit focused on entertainment. So <laughs> But I'm also the one who's really a therapist. <laughs> oh, yes, there's that. I know. We all know that. But anyway, I just want to say thank you so much. Yeah, thanks I'll for having me. post everything on Facebook about your, um, you know, your information. And I want to say thank you to everybody for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. I'm here every Thursday, 2 to 3. Go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. Look for my archives. And stick around this afternoon. We've got uh, Lost and Rewound right after this, which is so entertaining and funny and great music. And then uh, Sitting with Gianluca. It's one of our most popular shows. He's amazing. He's great. He always he knows so much about music. And he's got great taste. He plays great music. <laughs>